From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Summertime in southeastern North Carolina means wild animals are having more babies, and that means more orphaned, injured, and perfectly fine babies that you might encounter. According to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, if you find a wild animal you think needs help, most likely the best thing you can do is leave it alone. However, my guests today say there are lots of exceptions to this. We'll explore those exceptions, but a good rule of thumb, if you see a physical injury, call a wildlife rescuer. If you see a baby, or a fledgling, take a photo and call a wildlife rehabilitator for guidance. It is illegal in North Carolina to keep most wildlife species without a permit. Licensed rehabilitators are the only ones legally allowed to possess and provide care for these animals. Today, we'll explore what it means to be a licensed wildlife rehabilitator, And we'll learn about some of the ways they care for wild animals in southeastern North Carolina. With us today, Amelia Mason. She is founder and director of Skywatch Bird Rescue, a local nonprofit that cares for injured, orphaned, and misplaced birds. Skywatch also seeks to rehabilitate birds and either place them in sanctuaries or return them to the wild. Amelia Mason, welcome back to Coastline. It's very nice to be back. Thank you for having me. Good to have you with us. Anna Bolduck runs the nonprofit Bolduck's Wildlife Rescue in Brunswick County. She has a special focus on possums, but she does help all wild mammals. Anna Bolduck, welcome to the program. Thank you. Jeremy Bivens is a wildlife rehabilitator who has a full-time unrelated job. He funds his own rescue work, and he collaborates with other local organizations, including Bolduck's Wildlife Rescue and Skywatch Bird Rescue. Jeremy Bivens, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to have you with us. Let's talk first about this idea from uh, the North Carolina State Agency about leaving wild animals alone that you think might need help because there is harm that well-intentioned people can perpetrate on wild animals. So Amelia, let's start with you and birds, especially now we see a lot of fledglings. What do fledglings look like and how are they different from babies? So when it comes to birds, they operate a little bit differently than mammals do. Um, First, let me back up and say this. The North Carolina Wildlife Commission tells people to leave wildlife alone. And even though there might be many exceptions, there's a good reason why they say that. Um, There's more people now living in areas that used to be wooded, and we're finding more wildlife than ever before. And people will apply what they know about raising a kitten or a puppy or maybe something else, you know, in their past to any animal they find. So dripping water, providing milk, things like that. And they say leave it alone because even if it does need help, the DIY attempts that humans will make when they take that animal home is only going to do more harm. Um, people think they're helping an animal when really they're just accidentally torturing it to death by administering things, dripping things, talking to the animal, petting the animal. This is a wild animal that doesn't find your presence soothing or comforting. It's not a domesticated pet. 
So this would be like a leopard that caught a baby deer or something, and now he's licking it for a while before he eats it. That baby deer isn't comforted by that licking and coddling. He's terrified by it. So, so the human who's, who's trying, trying to, to hold the fawn, right. for instance, exactly. and is petting the fawn and talking softly to the fawn and thinks they're soothing the fawn. Right. They're stressing the fawn out. The fawn right. is terrified. So a lot of uh, wild animals have fight, uh, flight, or freeze. They freeze perfectly still. It's like being frozen with fear. They sit completely still and they don't move because they're waiting for the predator to let go so they can run. And then people think, oh, look, he's so tame. Well, he's enjoying it. He's sitting still. He's very relaxed. He's very calm. He seems healthy. And that's you're, you're petting it and you're touching it and you're talking to it when really that's just torture. So they're try they're saying leave things alone because they're trying to prevent people from just um, doing more damage than good. And we say call first. Take a photo, wait by the animal, and wait for a callback, but call professional first and get instructions from a licensed person, not from your grandma that used to raise squirrels in her backyard or the pet store. People call pet shops for some reason for wildlife advice, um, but from a licensed person. Then they'll tell you what to do. And that's why the Wildlife Resource Commission says leave it alone because most people still won't listen to that. They'll take things home that didn't need to come home with them. So Right. So the birds then. A lot of people are finding fledglings. And you talk about people bird napping. What, yes. what do you mean by that? So What's happening? The most common bird that you'll see is, are backyard birds. They're nesting in people's backyards. And you may have a feeder that feeds them. And most people think that baby birds stay in the nest until they know how to fly. So there's baby in the nest, and then there's adults flying around. But actually, there's a second stage in between of the fledgling stage. So your baby at home that's in a crib doesn't get out one day and then go run around and find a job. There's a phase in between where he's growing up. The fledgling phase means they've left the nest on purpose, most of the time on purpose. Um, they didn't fall out. They weren't kicked out. Unless they're naked or their eyes are still closed and they're physically immobile, um, they left on purpose. And then there's about uh, there's a period of about, I'd say, three to five days, maybe a week, depending on the species, where they are grounded. And this second phase, this grounded phase, is really important for their development. This is how they, they learn to balance. They gain strength in their muscle, muscle, their leg muscles. They have to get their land legs, so to speak, and they... Learn to fly from the ground up. So when you say they're grounded, they're spending more time on the ground. Almost all their time, yeah. They're hopping around on the ground, walking, kind of, it might be clumsily, flapping, practice flying, you know, flapping their wings and they're trying to fly. And, and this is, you can't just jump out of the nest one day and hope you're flying good. You have to do it, learn from, most birds learn to fly from the ground up. And during this phase, where is where they're most vulnerable because mom and dad has to fly away to go get food real quick and come back. They feed the baby real quick, and then they got to fly back away again to go to the other baby. And so this, this intervals of being alone, that's when people find them. And I think <clears throat> most people worry about, oh, well, he's alone. The predators are going to get him. I think more fledglings get kidnapped by humans than they, than they actually get caught by predators at this point because it's such a common thing for people now to find a fledgling bird. And they assume that because it's alone that it's orphaned. 
and they assume that because they see it flapping its wings and trying to fly, but it can't, that it must have a broken wing, so therefore it's injured. So these two assumptions, it's abandoned, it's orphaned, or it's injured, is why most fledgling birds, when found by a human, gets bird napped, unless they call first and they got, you know, the instructions. And even sometimes when we get a call and we tell people, you know, we saw a photo, we even see a video clip, he's perfectly healthy, leave him alone. People still have that urge to take the bird inside and keep him safe because they're worried about things that might happen to it. Well, there's hawks. I look up and I see hawks, which are usually just vultures, um, and they don't catch live things. Well, there's cats in my neighborhood. You know, they come up with these reasons as to why they should interfere because they're worried something might happen to the bird. And taking the bird inside is doing what to that fledgling? Well, first of all, um, uh if you take the bird inside, you're changing the temperature immediately. You're going from a really hot day outside in the 90s. And I don't know about you guys, but my house isn't in the 90s. Um, it's kept in probably the 70s or upper 60s. So it's a drastic temperature change. And very soon, these birds are going to start going hypothermic, especially at night when they don't have a heat source um, or they're not sitting outside in this heat. Um, then they have to be fed every 20 to 30 minutes the right foods, not the wrong foods. And you can't drip water in their mouth or pour water in their mouth. You're just aspirating them. And then people go on Google and they find all kinds of wrong information and start applying this information to the animal, which leads to its detriment. And like the fawn that you're petting, you're, you're stressing those, those fledglings out. Anna Bolduc, tell us first about fawns, because so many people say, I found this abandoned fawn just lying there in the grass, mom and dad nowhere nearby. So obviously the fawn's in trouble. Is that likely? Most of the time, no. Uh, fawns have little to no scent, so their mama will pick a spot in the grass and tell them to lay down during the day while they're out foraging. Um, if you do stumble upon a fawn, you don't approach it or touch it. You want to see if the tips of their ears are curled. And if they are, then it's likely dehydrated. But the best thing to do is still just take a picture and then call um, a local wildlife rehabber. And what about babies? Because that's another area where you say if you find a certain kind of baby mammal, it is likely that they need immediate assistance. What, what are some of those animals? The biggest one is possums. They'll fall out of their mama's pouch or fall off their back, and mother possums do not come back for their babies. So if you do see a very small mouse or hamster-sized possum in your yard, then mama's not going to come back, and it needs help. And what is, so if I ran across a baby possum in my yard, what's the best thing I can do? The what? best thing you can do is to secure it in a box um, or a cat carrier and then not feed it, don't pet it, don't talk to it, just call, preferably, um, a local wildlife rehabber. And what, what about squirrels and other baby mammals? If the baby squirrel comes running up to you, most of the time it is truly orphaned. If it is just hopping around on the ground near a tree and doesn't seem to be in distress and isn't shrieking or running up to you for help, then it should be okay. 
You're listening to Coastline. We're learning about wildlife rescue today, what's involved, and what you need to know to be more friend than foe. After this short break, we'll talk about feeding wildlife and why the effects of that can be a death sentence for an animal for a host of reasons. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Summer is a busy time in southeastern North Carolina for wildlife rehabilitators. It is against the law to take a wild animal into captivity unless you have a license from the state. With us today to explore what it takes and how humans can often unwittingly do more harm than good are Amelia Mason of Skywatch Bird Rescue, Anna Bolduck of Bolduck's Wildlife Rescue, and independent rehabilitator Jeremy Bivens. Jeremy Bivens, we, we say so often for so many different reasons, don't feed wild animals. But it's still a fun thing to do in some cases. Can you just talk about, from a wildlife rehabilitator's perspective, why that can perpetrate harm for the animals. I mean, we heard from Amelia that, you know, trying to drip water or milk into a baby's mouth is not only illegal because you're probably not licensed, but can be harmful. But what are some of the other ways that people trying to feed animals actually harm them? So it just gets them habituated to human interaction, which is never a good thing for the animal, right? It, it's, it's great for you to get up and uh, close with nature, but um, it's, it rarely has a good outcome for the, for the individual animal. And so <clears throat> I would argue that the best way to do that is, is plant a native food source, um, a persimmon tree or a pawpaw tree or something that um, some of our mammals can use um, to eat instead of you know, throwing out scraps or, or putting out food. And so when you're talking about planting native plants to feed local wildlife, it's more than just birds. Absolutely, yeah. There's um, pine trees will feed squirrels. Um, persimmon trees feed any number of mammals, um, and deer probably as well. Um, yeah, and uh, the deer also like the native flowers. Um, they'll come through and top just about every one that I have the, <laughs> on, on a nightly basis. So you're not feeding them purposefully. When you're I don't planting. mind. I don't mind. Yeah. Anna Bolduck, you've said that your absolute favorite animal is the possum. There are going to be some people who listen to this and say, why are you saving pests and nursing them back to health? We don't like possums. What it, first of all, I, I mean, I think there are two elements to this. There's probably just the emotional attachment that you have to your favorite animal. We all, we all have our favorite animal. And then there's what the possum does in the ecosystem. So can you tell us first about its actual role and, and why perhaps it's not a pest? Yeah, I think the people that consider them strictly pests just don't have a very good understanding of what they do in the ecosystem. Um, they are basically nature's little garbage men. 
So they'll go around and they'll clean up scraps or roadkill sometimes that if the vultures happen to leave any behind. <laughs> um, but they also eat cockroaches and small venomous snakes and mice and rats. So the creatures that are truly pests, the possums kind of help keep their population in control. And they also have been, there's been a lot of publicity about them eating ticks. And they do eat ticks, but it's not as big of an impact as people are thinking. They mostly help keep the mice and the cockroaches and the snakes in check. And how did you warm up to possums so so deeply? Like, why, why do you love them so much? I love their personalities. Each one has a different personality and... I think they're really cute, <laughs> personally. <laughs> I agree with you. I but... can see how they can be considered ugly when they're older, especially the males, because they get this big bulbous forehead and long snaggly teeth. <laughs> and if you stumble up against one and scare it, they do act very fierce. They'll open their mouths unnaturally wide and hiss. But their default, it's really all show. Most of the time, they'll play possum, which is the human equivalent of fainting. It's not intentional, but they'll generally faint before they actually attack you, unless you corner it and harass it and don't listen to the hissing and growling and snapping. So it's, it's, they're not going to be dangerous for most people unless you're really a jerk and go out of your way. Exactly. To, yeah. You have to try really hard to get bit by a possum because we've rehabbed hundreds of them at this point and have only ever been bit twice. And under what circumstances? How did it happen? It was very, very angry and very injured and in a trap, like a cat trap. Ooh. So she had been in there for, I think, three days, actually. Someone trapped her and thought she was dead, and she had a pouch full of babies and had already injured herself trying to claw and bite out of the cage. So she was just out of her mind. Yeah. So can you just take us through when you do an intake like that? So you've got a mama possum and a litter of babies. How do you start your care for them? And we're not describing this so that people can learn on their own and do the DIY stuff that Amelia was talking about. But just out of curiosity, what do you take us through the care that she took? For that specific mama my biggest concern at that point was just the stress that she was under. So the first thing I did was give her a medication that's a mild sedative to kind of help calm her down. And once they're calm, you do the exam. And if it seems like it's something that they don't need x-rays for or don't need veterinary intervention, for the most part, I'm able to triage them. Um, I like to administer check for parasites, basically fleas and ticks. And if they're overrun with fleas and ticks, then they're also likely anemic, which is something that can be really, really critical for a nursing mama or a small baby. So one of the first steps is to get the fleas off, which can be done with a Dawn bath, which, but that can cause stress. So typically we'll give oral Capstar or topical flea medication. And what do you feed possums in your care? They need a really balanced diet. It's kind of a complicated answer, but their diet has to have a balanced calcium to phosphorus ratio. So for the most part, 
I feed them a lot of kale, bok choy, dark leafy greens with calcium. They need a certain percentage of protein, but too much protein can lead to metabolic bone disease. Which um, you've encountered in possums. I have. Possums, interestingly, rarely get it in the wild. So the ones that I have had with metabolic bone disease were fed incorrectly from people keeping them as pets or um, and a, people not really understanding how their diet works. Yeah. The diet is so important. And Amelia, when you and I spoke on the phone, you were talking about the impact that bread can have on mm -hmm. waterfowl. Yeah. Ducks, geese. <clears throat> Tell us about that because so many people think it's just a, such a lovely thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. Go to Greenfield Lake Park, take a loaf of bread, mm -hmm. and take your kid or your yeah, grandkid. Sure. People and, have been doing that for hundreds of years. Yeah. Take the stale bread to the pond and go feed the right. ducks and geese or whatnot. Um, t times have changed, the topography have changed. Uh, Waterfell used to have a lot of green grassy areas around the pond that they could also eat from and benefit from and now it's really just the pond surrounded by streets and buildings um and the bread is like the feeding your child dessert it's nice in a small and you know the old rule 90 percent 90 percent 10 percent if you eat 90 percent healthy food and 10 percent junk food you'll be okay the problem is everybody's feeding just bread. So these ducks and geese are living mainly 90% off just bread, which is like your kid just eating dessert for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and only eating one healthy meal on Sunday afternoons. Um, so it's a lot of empty calories a then, lot of empty not calories. nourishing the and animal. And bread is an inflammatory food. It's an empty uh, starch, um, and it's an inflammatory food. So when the ducks and geese are older, they get joint arthritis and all kinds of diseases because of the fact that they're eating this free, easy food instead of going and you know foraging and working for food. Um, it's worse even for dumped ducks when there's domestic ducks and geese at a pond who can't fly away to another pond like wild ducks and geese can. Uh, when they're marooned at a pond, because they were put there illegally, um, people feed them and they can only eat this bread. They don't eat the grass. They don't really eat the insects like the wild ducks and geese do. They are just a farm animal entirely dependent on the human food. And so they get a lot of health issues from this. If, if wild um, Canada geese, for example, when the goslings eat too much bread every day, they grow a wing deformity called angel wing. You've probably heard of this angel wing. So the uh, metatarsal bones at the end of the wing, instead of growing properly towards the back, they grow out to the side. So you see these ducks with wings pointing out to the side. And a lot of people think their wings might be broken, but they're not. It's because when they were goslings, they didn't get complete nutrition. They got these empty calorie, starchy, sugary foods, um, and, and it renders them flightless. It's a permanent deformity. There's no fixing it. And when they're all grown up, the flock of geese will fly to, even if they're on migrate, to move around town, and then you, the one gets left behind, or the one or two gets left behind because they can't fly. So we encourage people, I think you can 
you can say all day long, don't feed wildlife. I think people will continue to do that. So what we try to do is to tell them what to feed them that's better than the bread you were going to feed them. Take some frozen peas or corn, some lettuce, some kale, any kind of leafy greens, any kind of cheap mixed bird seed from Walmart. Feed them bird seed or sunflower seeds, but stay away from the bread. It's just detrimental. You're listening to Coastline. We're talking with a group of wildlife rehabilitators who rescue orphaned and injured animals. Amelia Mason, we just heard, she is the founder and director of Skywatch Bird Rescue. Anna Bolduck leads the nonprofit Bolduck's Wildlife Rescue. And Jeremy Bivens is an independent, self-funded wildlife rehabilitator who collaborates with both organizations as well as others. Jeremy Bivens, one of the messages we keep hearing today is call a licensed wildlife rehabilitator. Let the pros do it because you as a layperson are much more likely to actually harm the animal. Can you just talk a little bit about what it takes to get a license for people who are really interested in this? What, what do you have to go through? How do you learn? So North Carolina has a, a great program that's a mentorship based. So you're, you become an apprentice with a licensed rehabber for a year, um, and then they'll sign off on your full license at the end of that year. And so ideally you learn the ins and outs um, throughout that year. You're allowed to take care of um, rabbits, squirrels, and, and opossums for that year. Um, and then after that, it's, a, it's just basically a license renewal um, every year. And there are specialties too, right? You recently earned a certification for a species that isn't part of the general license. Can you explain so how that, was that a, works? They have a separate license for um, diamondback terrapins and for southern hognose snakes, um, both of which um, are around uh, Carolina Beach. And so um, there wasn't a, another licensed um, rehab facility nearby, and so they'd have to drive them to Hubert or to the Outer Banks. And so now we have um, me local. So hognose snakes, those are protected species, right? Southern hognose are. Eastern hognose are not. We have both here. Um, and, and you probably are likely to see eastern anywhere in, in New Hanover County. Southern hognose, um, there's a population in Carolina Beach State Park. And even knowing where they hang out, it's hard to find them. I find like one every two years. And diamond terrapins, are those a threatened species? or? Um, I don't know what the current numbers are. They are certainly a protected species, and they were protected because they were uh, commonly used for turtle soup over the years. And so their numbers got um, startlingly low. And so they're now protected, and um, I think they, they go out and try and count um, populations every year. They have a turtle tally or a terrapin tally in, in Carolina Beach every year where they go out and count. Um, I've, seen them, uh, I've seen pictures of them at least down by in, like the downtown area. Um, but I haven't ever seen one in Carolina Beach. I know they're there, but so you said it's the southern hognose snake that right. that is threatened. Yes, protected species. So what uh, what is a call like when you get a call about a snake like a southern hognose? What what are you likely to find, and what do you do? So my snake calls are either um, tell me what this is or get it out of my house <laughs> slash yard slash garage. Right. Um, and so um, if it's an ID, uh, they usually send a picture um, and I can ID it over the phone. If it's a get it out of my house or garage, it's a, it's a trip over to, to release it. Um, and where do you take it? Well, they don't, snakes don't do well 
being relocated um, outside of their home range. And so I will usually try and educate the homeowner uh, about the species and why you want to have it around. And, um, and, and, and nine times out of ten, they'll, they'll be fine with me letting it go. If it's venomous, um, sometimes they're not. Um, <laughs> well, t- talk about that a little bit, because we all see these posts on social media where somebody finds a copperhead in the backyard um, or even a timber rattlesnake, which I think is another protected species. Yeah. So w- why are they beneficial? Why do we want to let venomous snakes roam around our backyards if they're inclined? Uh, so all of the snakes, venomous or non, um, have a positive effect against things like rats and mice, which we don't want. We have a horrible invasive rat problem in Carolina Beach. And so I want all the snakes working on that um, if possible. Um, I know they're, they're looking into copperhead venom as cancer treatment. And so there are other benefits, like beyond even the ecological, that these snakes provide. Um, in terms of how to convince them to let them stay, it, it's really just sort of showing them the, the good that they do. Um, and then educating them on, on how to keep them sort of out of their yard, right? Most people want to know how to, how to keep them away, and it's, it's usually a shelter or a food source. And so if you remove those two things, um, they might come in a garage to shed a skin, which happens commonly with rat snakes, but then they're gone. So they just become transient visitors to your yard instead of um, taking up residence. Anna Bolduck, you've you've struggled a little bit with people wanting rabbits out of their yards and, and other animals. Can you just uh, talk about what's happening and why you're getting more calls like that these days. Yes, we've noticed a big uptick in calls um, since they've started clear-cutting patches of woods and doing more development just because the animals have fewer places to go to live. Uh, it is bunny season right now, and the rabbits tend to make their nests in people's yards because they don't have the woods they normally would. And a lot of calls that I get are surprisingly people wanting me to just remove the nest of rabbits instead of leaving the nest there because they just don't want rabbits in their yard for whatever reason. So the rabbits are perfectly fine. Yes. But the person just wants them removed. Yes. And rabbits don't other than maybe munching on your garden, they don't do anything negative to your yard. I think the people's biggest assumption is that it's easy for us to just take them and rehab them and then re-release them, but in actuality, it's not easy. Every time we take in an animal, it's hundreds of hours trying to rehab it, and rabbits in particular do not do well being rehabilitated because they get stressed extraordinarily easy and the stress hormone will cause them to pass away suddenly or unexpectedly. So out of a litter of 10 rabbits, if we got a litter of 10 rabbits, maybe it'd be realistic for maybe three to survive to release. And this is coming from a licensed wildlife rehabilitator whose focus is on small mammals like this. Yes, they have a very complicated digestive system and you have to feed them specific food in specific stages of their life. If you do it too soon without prepping their stomach with probiotics and prebiotics and try and switch to just feeding them 
carrots or lettuce, then it will rot in their gut and end up killing them. Whew. You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at wildlife rehabilitation in North Carolina during one of the busiest seasons of the year. After the break, more with our licensed wildlife rescue folks. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. During the summer season, tourists descend on the local beach towns of North Carolina, which can mean more cars on the road, hitting pregnant female animals, more people chasing birds on the beach, summer storms blowing nests out of trees, and even tree cutting can injure or orphan animals, according to the state's Wildlife Resources Commission, an activity we're seeing lots of around the region. With me today to explore wildlife rehabilitation and how lay people can be the most help to our wild friends are three licensed rehabilitators, Anna Bolduck of Bolduck's Wildlife Rescue, Amelia Mason of Skywatch Bird Rescue, and Jeremy Bivens, an independent and self-funded wildlife rehabilitator. And we don't normally do this, but I have to say, during the break, we got into some weird stuff, and it became uh, let's top this stories about weird things that people, unlicensed people, who have illegally taken wildlife into captivity have decided to feed these animals. Um, Jeremy, you recently rescued a baby. I, I didn't even get to rescue it. So um, she called about a chickadee that she had for a week that wasn't flying right. Was this so an adult bird probably? or This was a fledgling, I think, okay. or, or probably um, just past fledgling. And I asked her what she'd been feeding it, and um, she said crushed up peanuts and strawberries that she Googled what chickadees eat, and that's what came up. I I have yet to find that in a Google result. What would Um, you feed a chickadee? um, Chickadees eat almost exclusively insects, like caterpillars, I I believe. Um, And so um, soft-bodied insects is is what they should be eating exclusively, I I think. And when you told us that story, story during the break, Amelia Mason of Skywatch Bird Rescue says, well, that's not that weird. Let me top that. <laughs> what, what have you seen, Amelia? I've, we've, oh, gosh, I should write a book. We have um, had so many strange things that people have fed birds. And again, this is why I always tell people, don't Google, don't look stuff up online because you'll just not find the right info. We've had... People bring in birds and they have fed them guacamole. Um, the best story for me is this was way back in 2013 or 14, I think. A waitress uh, brought a chimney swift uh, from a restaurant where she'd worked at. The swift was found, it was a brick building, and the swift was found clinging to the outside wall of the building, which they do. They fly and they'll 
porch vertically clinging to... On the outside of the building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and outside of the restaurant, on the wall, the chimney swift, a young fledgling was clinging to the wall. And he was there for more than 24 hours. He'd stayed on the wall. And uh, they left him there. They didn't bring him in. But the chef was dripping clam chowder through a straw into the bird's mouth for for 24 hours. When he was there, every shift he would... Yeah, and so... <laughs> Of course, by the time I got the bird, he had blood coming out of his cloaca. Um, this bird was what's not a, savable. What's a cloaca? So that's their private parts. Um, birds don't have a penis and a vagina. There's just one portal where everything happens through, um, and it's called a cloaca. It's just one little hole, and every, all the business happens through there, mating, food, everything, um, or defecation and everything. And so the cloaca was swollen, he had been bleeding inside, he was ice cold, and now having this clam chowder forced down his mouth. Um, and again, this is just why, you know, we always tell people, don't do anything, take a photo and call first. If they had just wrapped him up in a towel and kept him warm and called, that bird would have easily been savable. But he had to go through 24 hours of torture, well-meaning torment, <sighs> by the human who's trying to help, but you just don't know what you're doing, so just don't do it, you know, so... Um, yeah. That was one of the saddest cases for me was the clam chowder one because it was a baby. But we've had people feed uh, soft baked sweet potato to owls. I've had people <laughs> feed animals all kinds of bizarre things uh, that, so, yeah. It's bizarre, but it's so damaging to yeah. that animal. Anna Bulldog, what have you seen? Well, first off, I want to kind of explain that from an outside perspective, we might sound holier than thou by telling people, don't feed it, you don't know what you're doing, because they might look at us and say, well, you're just a regular person just like us. And that is true, but there are so many different aspects that go into what to feed the animal, how much to feed the animal, at what stage to feed the animal. Um, That's such a good point. Yes, but one of the weirdest things I think was a baby squirrel that someone had found and had for a couple days and in their mind they were thinking hey squirrels like almonds and this is a baby so I'm gonna feed it almond milk (laughs) and on top of that they also weren't stimulating the baby to potty because they didn't know that they can't potty on their own so it was about three days of this baby getting almond milk, not the correct temperature, not the correct amount. Um, Also, you would never feed it almond milk. That's not what you'd feed it, but then also not helping it potty after every feeding. So that baby went through a horrible experience and ended up passing shortly after I got her. Uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's it's so complicated. It sounds like what you have to learn to, and we're we're going to talk about rabies because that's something we haven't touched on yet. But just going back for a moment to what you have learned to be able to do this and help these animals. All of you love animals clearly because this isn't a line of work you get into to get rich or famous uh, or even really accolades. You're, so much of your work is just kind of behind the scenes. But can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to this particular Amelia Mason bird rescue in the first place? 
Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> so Anna's right. You know, when we're saying you don't know what you're doing, um, people, we're all just regular people and people have a natural instinct to help as probably each and every one of us did when we first found an animal and we didn't know what to do. The difference, however, is we've gone out of our way to learn what to do. Uh, getting a state permit to do mammals, and then in my case, a federal permit for migratory birds, which means you are also carry a mammal permit. Um, it's not like a fishing license. You don't just send in an application with five bucks and you get one because you want one. You have to be vetted and vouched for by a veterinarian. You have to be vouched for by peers. You have to prove to the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Wildlife Resources Commission your knowledge and your education. You have to build housing that's inspected. Um, I can only speak for myself here, but I've gone through hundreds and hundreds of hours of seeking education, driving to other states to take classes and courses and a workshop, hundreds of hours of reading books and publications and volumes and, um, you know, just, I mean, over the 15 years, I'm talking about several hundreds of hours of volunteerism and learning, and all that time is spent at your own expense and on your own time and your own dime. So the rehabbers didn't just Google what to do and now they know what to do and we're preaching to people don't do anything. We have access to books and resources that you don't have as a layman person. Um, we have memberships to wildlife organizations like the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association, which you have to be a member of in order to get those publications written by professionals on the topic. Um, and it's not one size fits all. Wildlife doesn't mean you can now rehab everything. Even for someone with a federal permit like me, you have to prove to the Fish and Wildlife your expertise on each species. So if you have a federal permit for, let's say, woodpeckers, you don't just get to rehab osprey as well. You have to add that an additional, an additional federal permit for the osprey and for the heron and for the hawk and for the this. So you're talking about years and years of work and learning and educating and knowledge and seeking more knowledge. And still, even still now to this day, I would like to learn more about bats. That's my next channel is to educate myself more about bats because we're about to add um, bats to our permit, etc. So when we so tell people to hold back on what they've Googled, we we know what we're talking about, but the the, in, the knowledge didn't come without a price. Yeah, and that's clear. I mean, all of you care so deeply. Do you remember the first time you realized, maybe as a little girl, that you were fascinated by birds? No, actually, I didn't. I, I used to go outside, and my dad, who was an attorney who worked from home, his window was always open. And I would crouch down outside uh, outside his window, crouch down, and I would mimic one of our local birds there. It was called the hoop hoop. And they would go, and they would do this long. And I would sit there, and my dad would pretend like he thinks it's a bird. He would go tell his business partner, like, oh, oh, listen, listen to that bird. And I'd be like, oh, it's actually, you know, it's actually me. But I was never, I tricked my dad thinking there's a bird in the house. <laughs> but I wasn't obsessed with birds or anything. That was just what you did because we had no toys and no, no TV and no anything, you know, just playing outside. Um, uh, but I didn't have a lot of experience with birds as a child. I didn't really think about birds that much. Um, I don't know if this contributes to it or not, but I, I had a recurring dream as a child that I could fly. And I always had that dream over and over and over that I would jump off the top of a mountain peak and I'm just gliding over and looking down at the gorgeous valley, sort of like just gliding like a vulture or an eagle. And that was a recurring dream for me. Um, 
But uh, I didn't really pay attention to birds and what happened to them until my mother found a, a dumped domestic duck, an abandoned duck at a local pond in Charlotte. And she knew that wasn't right. She doesn't know much about, much about birds, but she knew that that's a white farm animal glowing in the dark at night for the predators. And she called, contacted the Carolina Waterfowl Rescue, and they told her what to do, and I helped her capture the duck and bring it in. And when I saw their place and realized that there's so many uh, birds that get injured, oh, of course, there was mainly waterfowl at the time, but I thought that something like that would be state-funded and that our taxpayer dollars funds wildlife recuperation or at least euthanasia or at least wildlife rescue. And then I learned it doesn't. And that was a huge eye-opener for me um, because what she was doing there was not to offend anyone, but it was like Jesus taking two fish on the beach and turning it into many, you know, feeding many. In the, uh, and what she was doing there was a miracle every single day. I couldn't understand how they were surviving feeding all these animals with no funding at all. And that was that really touched my heart, and I decided to help. And, and when I first moved to Wilmington, I found a heron, and there was no place to take the injured heron. And that sort of opened my eyes to the need of wild, proper wild bird rehabilitation, even if it's just for the relief of euthanasia, which even that wasn't available here for that bird at that time. So, and that kind of planted the seed. Jeremy Bivens. When did you first start rescuing wildlife? And you did, all of you started as non-experts, and we just have a few minutes left, but I want to get to that in case some some kids hear this and, and see a, a path. So I grew up in Nashville and worked with a couple there that did uh, parrot rescue. They rescued Basenjis, which is a specific breed of dog, and then they also did wildlife rescue. And so I worked with them for a couple of years and, and came out of that relationship with uh, a a deep appreciation for parrots, a couple of Basenjis, and the desire to um, to take up wildlife rehab once I was sort of stable and um, had my own house and, and land and all that stuff. And now you do. And now I do. <laughs> Anna Bolduck, your dad encouraged this when you were a kid? He did. He's always had a huge heart for animals, and they would seem to seek us out we came across an unusual amount of animals that would just show up in our yard injured and I would always want to help them and he would do his best to guide us as well and I had no idea about wildlife rehabilitation when I was that young and he didn't either. So when I got older, probably when I was 18 or 19, I was fostering kittens and I was on Craigslist one day looking for kittens that had been dumped or a litter of kittens that needed help and I saw a post that somebody had found a baby squirrel and they were going to just leave it at the gas station and hope for the best so I went to that gas station and got him and called found out about wildlife rehabilitators and called them for guidance and help and that was a happy story because he survived right he did you you would do things differently now but he's he survived he did, yes. Let's talk about rabies briefly because this is something we haven't touched on and it's such an issue in North Carolina wildlife. Anna Bolduck, so many people see raccoons and immediately link them to uh, the idea that they're rabid. Uh, is there a way to tell the difference or what do we need to know about the risks with raccoons? One of the most important things to do is to just err on the side of caution. Um, 
If there's a raccoon in your attic or you see a baby raccoon, take pictures and call. Don't approach it. Don't touch it. Um, call someone for guidance. But also there are several things that can mimic rabies or look like rabies that's not necessarily rabies. And a big one of those is just simple dehydration. Um, and another one is distemper, which is another big issue. Some species cannot be rehabilitated in North one Carolina. Oh, I'm Amelia, sorry, rehabilitated. Amelia. I thought you meant to say yeah. carry rabies. Um, and you're right, some species can't be rehabilitated. Um, birds don't carry rabies, which is one of the nice things about working <laughs> with them. Um, but we do have people kind of drop off sometimes. They kind of drop off anything they find just because they know us. Uh, we recently, and this is again part of, I think, while the WRC tells people to leave things alone before you interfere, and this is why we say call first before you touch anything. I would never touch any adult injured mammal with my bare hands ever at all. We just two weeks ago, I think, had a, a, a young lady show up um, at Skywatch, and she had her uncle and her sister in the car. They found a young raccoon that looked like he'd been hit by a car in the road. His back legs were paralyzed. And, um, you know, we're getting info from her because what we would do is take it in and immediately transfer it to another rehabber that is licensed for raccoons and, uh, you know, knows what they're doing for raccoons and is an expert in raccoons. But while she's talking, almost at the very end, uh, nonchalantly, she mentioned, oh, by the way, you know, he kind of bit my uncle's foot. And I was like, hang on a second. This changes things. Let's talk some more. And so um, the end of that story story was um, there was just barely a scratch on his foot. Animal control came over, took over the situation um, because we always called them for stuff like that. And it came back positive that Rakabokin had rabies. And now he has to go through all the shots. Mm -hmm. That's this edition of Coastline. Amelia Mason, Anna Bulldog, Jeremy Bivens. Thank you all so much for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fresnel engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode along with notes and resources at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.